Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we have two guests on the show, and we are going to talk about China's foreign policy in Afghanistan. And today I'm very happy to have Raffaello Pantucci on the line, and he is a senior or he is a director, actually, of International Security Studies at the Royal United Service Institute in London. And then we have David Gartenstein-Ross on the show again, and he is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies here in D.C. So, first of all, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. So, China's foreign policy towards Afghanistan. This is a very interesting topic, especially with the U.S. drawback out of Afghanistan. So why don't we talk about the two major objectives and the other objectives that China has in Afghanistan? Um, I don't know. Maybe, David, maybe you'd like to start with this. Certainly. Uh, there is no interest in this topic. I've been uh, working for several years, actually, um, looking at, at various uh, neighbors of Afghanistan and uh, what their foreign policy is towards the country. Some of them are fairly well known in the United States. Uh, the foreign policy of Pakistan has been studied at quite some length. But as the U.S. draws down, uh, other countries are stepping up to assert their interests. As it's uh, said, uh, nature abhors a vacuum, and the reduction in U.S. troops is leaving a vacuum where other countries are scrambling to really try to secure their objectives. Uh, China, to me, is likely going to be the most important country uh, other than Pakistan moving forward. Now, one could make a case uh, for India. Um, there, one could also um, make a case uh, for Iran perhaps being more important. But uh, regardless of that, I, I think uh, China is very likely – to be a very influential player there. And over the past uh, um, uh, decade plus, um, going back really to the time of the Taliban, um, it's been uh, building up a set of uh, a couple of interests, uh, one of which is the commercial interests in the country. Uh, when Afghanistan opened itself up for uh, foreign investment, China, with its state-owned industries, as opposed to the pure free market model employed in the United States, was um, a, a real winner in a few different projects, uh, one of which was uh, a copper mining project in Logar province, uh, which has been beset by difficulties, but uh, nonetheless, uh, China still is invested in, uh, and uh, the other uh, of which was uh, energy concessions in the north of the country. Uh, the second major interest that it has is a, is a security interest. This interest has existed for some time, going back to really the Afghan civil war and the Taliban years. And um, this is a, a group called uh, the Uyghurs, who uh, are um, uh, the largest ethnic group in uh, Xinjiang province in western China. Uh, the, there's been uh, problems that China's experienced with Uyghur separatism for some time, and uh, you know, a very rich history there that I won't get into in any length, not, certainly not in this, in this very first answer. Uh, but in the 1990s, uh, Uyghur militant groups uh, who had both uh, separatist ambitions and also um, really bore the, the hallmarks of a jihadist outlook um, found a safe haven in uh, Afghanistan uh, with the Taliban. This was a concern to China, uh, which tried to negotiate with the Taliban and engage high-level leadership. And uh, that is an enduring concern, especially um, if uh, Uyghur groups uh, end up uh, finding a safe haven again uh, in Afghanistan, which a lot of uh, analysts believe is already the case. Raffaello, would you like to add something to this opening? 
Well, I think that the other thing to remember when you're looking at China's interest in Afghanistan is you've got to remember the wider interest that China has in the broader region. And if you look at the sort of Chinese policy that you've seen in the past few years, which is this idea of trying to develop the West and trying to develop the countries around its Western sort of borders, so you're talking about Central Asia and South Asia, then you've seen this big push towards developing infrastructure and transport routes and trade corridors that go out, that emanate from Xinjiang and sort of Tibet even to some degree, and then basically go outwards. And if you're looking at these sorts of trade routes, the possibility of Afghanistan turning a net exporter of instability once again presents a very dangerous prospect of starting to export this sort of instability and problems to disrupt these trade routes. If you sort of look at a map, Afghanistan kind of sits squarely in the middle of two routes, one that goes out to the seas and the Indian Oceans and to sort of those routes out and the other that goes through Central Asia, ultimately to European markets. And I think one of the primary Chinese concerns is that Afghanistan could disrupt those two trade corridors if it becomes if it returns to being what it was before. Very interesting. So looking at the idea of China exploiting the country's natural minerals and resources, what type of minerals and resources does China have interest in in Afghanistan? I mean, I think we have to remember that Afghanistan is a country of huge potential natural resources. The U.S. Uh, Geological Survey did a did a very uh, comprehensive overview, which sort of picked up a lot of the threads that the Soviets had left behind when they uh, left the country a few years, well, many years ago now. Um, and they estimated that the wealth was somewhere between one, two, three trillion. I seem to think, I seem to recall, but the number is very vague. But I think the sort of most, uh, the biggest sort of resources there seems to be a, enough lithium in the country that it could be become a sort of Saudi Arabia of lithium. Um, there's large copper deposits. There's some energy reserves up in the north as well. And there's all sorts of other natural resources and minerals that are scattered all over the place. All of these are, of course, appealing to a country like China that has a sort of industrial machine that needs a lot of these raw materials to sort of feed itself and to keep going. So it's, of course, very attractive. But I do think that we have to be careful to um, not focus too much on the sort of natural resource side of the equation. Um, because I think that the point that the reason that in some way Chinese companies are the ones that become quite interested in these resources because you know, they are not only are interested in trying to secure these sorts of mineral resources, but they have the capacity and the, the sort of infrastructure to build all the other infrastructure that's required to actually extract the material, the minerals. If you're looking at the sort of Messiainak project and you look at the contract that the Chinese signed, the Messiainak project was the copper deal that David mentioned before, which is the sort of first big mining concession the Afghan government gave, um, well, sort of the current Afghan government gave out. And that was won by a Chinese pair of Chinese companies called MCC and Jiangxi Copper, you know, the deal was actually one that was structured with a huge amount of infrastructure that comes along with it, because there's absolutely none of that in that in Afghanistan at the moment. And so you need these sorts of big state-owned enterprises, and the Chinese ones are particularly adept at this, that are able to provide not only the sort of the capacity to actually dig the stuff out of the ground, but actually build, you know, the power stations, the roads, all the infrastructure that needs to go along with it. David, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the other um, minerals I'd add that are also important are uh, uh, cobalt um, and, and uh, gold as well as iron. Um, I think mm -hmm. that I mean, Raffaello's point is, is exactly right uh, about the infrastructure. And uh, in fact, um, this is a reason to think that the Chinese investment may not last. Uh, I mean, as, as uh, Raffaello certainly knows, they've um, built up infrastructure, but it's been halting in part because there's so many problems 
mm-hmm. with getting the mine started. It began uh, in the Messianic project with a controversy over an archaeological site that was there, and there have been multiple delays in that project. Um, so they've been building up infrastructure, but it's really expensive to do so. And even if they build up infrastructure in that area, you have uh, the broader problem that you still you still don't have. Um, the kind of road system through the country that would be uh, necessary to really profitably uh, bring copper out to market consistently, number one. And number two, there's concerns about what direction is the security situation going to take. Uh, As uh, the U.S. draws down, uh, you won't have U.S. troops there anymore. China certainly isn't interested in bringing troops in uh, to serve as a counterinsurgency-type force. And so if the roads become too dangerous, I think, again, their progress is going to be halting. I, I don't think they'll give up on it. Uh, but what we explore in the monograph is, and one of the, uh, one of actually the primary reasons of writing this is to see what happens if Chinese foreign policy fails. Because right now, I think that its initial paradigm is fairly well settled. Um, you know, it's it's with violent non-state actors, it's going to try to engage them at all levels, ranging from engaging the Taliban to try to prevent the Taliban from giving safe haven to Uyghur groups. It's going to uh, try to buy off people who uh, might attack its projects, whether it's its energy concessions or the Messianic project. Uh, but it, it's still a very rough neighborhood, and there's so many players who could try to rob them or attack their sites that I think they're still very halting. Uh, and the the direction of security and the direction specifically of their profitability, uh, as well as the direction that the Taliban takes with Uyghur groups, could really significantly change their current foreign policy course. And just for our listeners' knowledge, we will be posting some works by Raffaello and also the monograph that David just alluded to. But building on what you just said, David, have these projects, these we could call them infrastructure projects, have they come under attack at all? Have there been security issues already? Um, I know you alluded to security issues in the future with the U.S. pullback, but what has it been so far for these projects that China is investing billions of dollars in? Uh, the main security issue that that um, has really affected them, in my view, um, I mean, there, there's a few. Um, one of which is um, there have been you know, periodic uh, attacks that have been blamed on the Taliban. Uh, but in June 2012, one, uh, one uh, incident which I think of is highly significant is when uh, militias affiliated with uh, General Abdul Rashid Dostum, who um, is uh, – I describe him as a pro-government warlord who uh, strikes a kind of an independent posture, a very notorious person and actually an extraordinarily colorful person in Afghanistan. Um, he and his, his militias disrupted surveyors and engineers, um, and it seemed that uh, Dostum was trying to intimidate CNPC into giving him a personal share of proceeds – uh, for this project, um, China reportedly ended up striking a deal with him to ensure that his men didn't interfere. And uh, indeed, attacks ended up declining thereafter, which uh, to me is, is really a paradigmatic case of Chinese policy. Instead of, of uh, taking the U.S. route, where the U.S. tends to not make concessions and instead fight people who are trying to intimidate it, instead it took a route which was uh, um, trying to get at the problem but by making concessions, uh, which seems to me. Uh, a part of their foreign policy moving forward. They don't like the expense, um, and it's not really uh, – it doesn't fit with their policies yet to go in with this heavy hand. Uh, and so this was a way where they were able to get him to stop attacking the project while by, by simply striking a deal. One of the questions that well, comes to mind I'm, is yeah. why are these projects so important to China? And, Raffaello, I will let you answer this question, and I, I hear that you wanted to add to what David said, hmm. so I will hand this over to you. 
Well, I think that I was just going to say the, the, the sort of the deal that CMPC had done in the North. I think one of the main problems that they had with it was that when CMPC decided to do the deal, you know, CMPC is the big Chinese uh, energy company, state-owned yeah. energy company. They'd watched while MCC and Jiangxi Copper, these two other state-owned enterprises, had floundered in their pro- with their project in Messina. And so CMPC went into the North with a partner company. And they employed in this partner company, it was a group called the Watan Group. The Watan Group is one that's a proprietary owned by I think it's a cousin or it's in the leadership somewhere is a cousin or a very close relation of Karzai. It's basically someone from Karzai's broader tribe. Now, the problem is that anyone who sort of has an understanding of Afghanistan would look at that and say, well, that's exactly the wrong partner to take up to the north, because in the north, it's a different warlord's territory. And so if you're going into that part of the country, you want to have a local ally, not an ally from Kabul, which is essentially what CMPC had done. And so I think a lot of the problems that you've seen around that project are sort of associated with this. But what this speaks to the bigger problem about Chinese foreign policy in Afghanistan is they don't really have that detailed and understanding yet of what's actually happening on the ground. And sometimes they're trying to learn from their mistakes in the past, but it isn't necessarily always drawing the right conclusion. You know, I've spoken to plenty of people in Kabul and elsewhere who have said, you know, well, CNPC really should have found another partner for that deal, you know, because their initial impetus to do the deal was one that was driven, I think, by their positive experience across the border from Afghanistan and Turkmenistan, where CNPC is making, um, is the the sort of main, uh, is the main owner or the main sort of, uh, you know, extractor of gas or main purchaser, I'm sorry, of gas from Turkmenistan's huge Galkanish uh, gas field. And they're taking all of that back to China. And so, you know, it's a sort of expansion of that uh, property, but it was a sense that they didn't really sort of know the terrain that they were getting themselves into. And I think this does speak to a sort of bigger problem. I think the security yeah. side of it is something that everyone, um, I think, is very rightly savvy to. And certainly, you know, I, don't, I think the idea that the Chinese are going to start deploying soldiers uh, to protect their interests in Afghanistan is quite limited. But I think what's interesting about that in some ways that we have started to see the Chinese do some efforts towards contributing to Afghanistan security, at least recognizing that it's yeah. important. And they have tried in some other ways as well to stimulate the Afghans to do more about this. So, for example, they created that um, mining uh, mining protection force, I think, in Logar province. Of, I think it was about 2,000 men or something. And the idea was that these guys were sort of local militiamen, essentially, that would protect the site. And what you saw, a very similar sort of thing happening up in the north around the CNPC project in um, the Amudarya Basin. Um, I think to Chelsea's question about what did the Chinese, um, you know, are these projects uh, that important? I think it's I think there's a number of things here. I think one is that these are large natural resources that are right near Chinese borders. And so there's naturally an interest and appetite in having them. But I think there's another aspect here, too, that is something that the Chinese system is still trying to sort of grapple with, which is this idea that, you know, they see that economic uh, stability and economic um, prosperity brings security and stability in its way. This is very much the Chinese sort of mentality, especially when they're looking at foreign policy in dangerous parts of the world. And so I think from some, to some degree, there is, I think, a belief in Beijing that looks at these sorts of big economic projects in an adjacent unstable country like Afghanistan and says, well, that's our contribution to the sort of security and stability of this country. You know, as I say, this project is one, the the INAC one, the copper one, is one that has all this infrastructure associated with it. Well, you know, part of that was they were going to build a huge power station. And that power station would not only generate enough power to, you know, make the copper mine and smelter that they were building adjacent to it work, but it would also power the whole region. And so suddenly you'd have electricity and power and then people could do a whole bunch of other things. So there is, I think, that that bigger vision that at least the Chinese are starting to think about. I think, though, they haven't quite thought through all the sort of steps of implementation. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um, I, I think Raphael makes a, an excellent point about uh, how the Chinese often you know, lack localized knowledge when they're going in and trying to implement their policy. Um, I, I think one of the parts which I find uh, interesting about his statement uh, and something which I look at in the monograph is the question of um, Chinese – uh, military actions if uh, mm. these policies fail. And I think that he's correct that um, uh, the, the current models that he talks about for protecting commercial projects are very much in line with what uh, China's likely to do. But China showed a distinct preference for acting multilaterally wherever possible. Mm. Uh, and part of this uh, has deep roots in, in Chinese foreign policy paradigms. And, and this is one, one thing which I think is actually very interesting about Afghanistan, the way it could influence other Chinese foreign policy paradigms. So when you look at, at, at what Chinese foreign policy has traditionally been, the doctrine of non-intervention or non-interference in others' affairs is, is a large part of um, what China has stood for since the 1950s. And the reason for that is that when this policy was first forged, uh, China was concerned about others uh, actually interfering in its, in its affairs. It wasn't um, the budding superpower that it is today. Uh, whereas uh, you know now it's much more willing to engage in foreign affairs, it's much more willing to uh, even commit troops uh, to uh, various areas uh, because uh, you know, doing so uh, is in line with Chinese interests. But uh, I think that the most likely thing you're going to see, I mean, um, we're absolutely in agreement that we're not going to see the, a major deployment of Chinese troops. That's simply not going mm. to happen. But I think that we could see uh, at some point China doing uh, targeted killings of uh, terrorist enemies similar to what the United States has done in multiple theaters. Um, that's something where, um, number one, the U.S. has already set that precedent. And number two, China's not too concerned about setting such a precedent because if it did so, it's not as though uh, there are terrorists inside China's borders where they're afraid that other countries will do it to China. So I, I'm not saying that's going to happen anytime soon. But to me, that's the most likely scenario to increase Chinese military intervention uh, in Afghanistan. And if so, um, in general, with Chinese foreign policy, when you set a precedent – uh, when China sets a precedent, it tends to act in accord with that precedent. So it could be an interesting route in to a somewhat more aggressive Chinese foreign policy on the issue of violent non-state actors. Um, I think David makes an interesting point there. And I think if we look at what, for example, they did in the Mekong Delta earlier this year or last year, I cannot now remember exactly the date, there was a group of drug lords who had basically kidnapped and massacred 19 Chinese sailors, um, fishermen who were in the sort of Mekong Delta. And there's a big public outcry in China about this. And basically the PSB, uh, the Chinese police, uh, you know, went in, snatched these guys, brought them back and put them on trial. And it was very interesting in the coverage subsequent to that event, um, the police chief in question who sort of led this whole operation, he made this sort of offhand remark. He said, you know, we looked at using a drone to take these guys out, but we decided, no, we'll go get them and put them on trial. But it was this sort of offhanded way, which he threw the drone comment, which made a lot of people think that maybe uh, the Chinese, I think, are thinking in this direction. I think that's probably true broadly. But I think when you're looking at Central Asia and Afghanistan in particular, and also Pakistan, I don't argue you know the there these countries and by which these countries i mean all five of the stands of the five central asians of afghanistan and pakistan have all got a very good track record of basically going after individuals that chinese government express a concern about you know if you um you know you can look back at the uh, sort of pakistani response to a number of times when there have been incidents inside china that the chinese have sort of said oh there was an outside actor here there's a very resultant and obvious crackdown that you see happening in pakistan i've spoken to officials in all of the central asian countries with the exception of a couple of them um and afghanistan and i've asked them with a question of you know well 
is there a context where the Chinese have expressed concern about someone and what would, you know, be the, what would, what would you do about it if that happened? And they said, well, you know, in every case they said, well, you know what, they did ask us and this is what we did about it. And in every situation they dealt, they'd gone after the person. So I think the Chinese have got in this particular part of the world, a very good network of relationships with local officials that I think are strengthened through multilateral organizations like the SCO, but also at a bilateral level to basically deal with problems that they're worried about. And I think if you're going to, if you look at the sort of broader um, jihadist movement and the sort of Uyghurs place within it, the Uyghurs have had a huge amount of difficulty getting uh, kind of traction amongst the global jihadist community. You've seen some moments when they've, um, you know, groups like Al-Qaeda, like Abu Yaha Libya gave a video in which he sort of talked about their struggle. And we've seen, the, uh, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri refer to them a few times. But we haven't really seen much evidence of them putting assets to support the sort of Uyghur struggle and the sort of attempts to attack China. And I think a big part of that is the fact that the Chinese have got a very good sort of capacity to basically lean on all these people nearby to deal with these sorts of problems and to basically do whatever they want except support the Uyghurs to try to launch attacks against China. Right. And I think there it's a question really of uh, lack of capacity. I mean, it's very clear, uh, as as Rafael states, that uh, China's preferred course of action is to get somebody else to go and put pressure and deny Uyghur groups of safe haven. One of the, uh, I think, uh, one impetus behind some of uh, Pakistan's um, you know, coin policies this year has, in my view, been Chinese pressure uh, yeah. directed at these particular groups. Um, so it, it's the, the thing that you could face in Afghanistan. I mean, you just had a top general in Afghanistan, a top U.S. general, talk about how uh, the Afghan national security forces are sustaining losses that just aren't sustainable for them to remain a viable fighting force. Uh, if you have a, a confluence of circumstances where, n- number one, uh, the uh, Afghan national security forces aren't able to uh, you know, guarantee security or go after targets that China wants them to, which is entirely plausible. Number two, uh, China um, fails in some way in its negotiations uh, with mm. the Taliban. Um, so, I mean, the Taliban in the past seems to have had a strategy where it would allow Uyghur groups to find safe haven, but at the same time uh, wouldn't allow them to plan attacks against China from their territory, which is a partial mm. win but also in, in, it's much more, in a, a real way, a loss. Because if there's a group that's going to plan attacks against China in a different area and it's able to enjoy safe haven in Afghanistan, that's not a situation that the U.S. would find acceptable in an analogous circumstance. And probably China, China almost certainly has a problem with it, especially if you see a continuation of some of the upsurge in Uyghur attacks inside of China that you've seen over the course of this past year. So if you have those two things... Uh, plus, uh, third, when there's a, a major attack which China associates with Afghanistan, an inability to get another partner, that's where you could actually start to see the shift. But if they have some other agent in there, whether it's a state actor or even a non-state actor who can deprive uh, Uyghur groups of safe haven, or if the Uyghur groups there just you – know, there's not a connection, any sort of discernible connection to violence inside of China – then you might not see that shift in policy. But kind of looking out in term, in, you know, for the next 10, 15 years, that to me is one of those scenarios where it's hard to assess what the probability is. But I'd put it at least somewhere in the, the 25% or more range that you may see China um, uh, using, using drones or otherwise increasing offensive operations. On this point, uh, maybe, Raffaello, you'd like to tackle this question. For our listeners' sake, who are the Uyghur? And what are their objectives? 
Well, Uyghurs are a Central Asian population that live majority in China. There's about 10 million of them living out in uh, Xinjiang, which is China's sort of westernmost province um, that's sort of adjacent to Central Asia and uh, Afghanistan. Um, they are, by sort of ethnicity, probably closer to Uzbeks than they are certainly to Han Chinese. They speak a language which is proximate to Turkic, or I'm, I'm told by Turkish-speaking friends is comprehensible in the sort of Turkish people, and it's in that sort of family languages. Um, they are Muslim. They live, as I say, majority out in Xinjiang. Um, however, you find substantial Uyghur diaspora populations living across the borders in Kazakhstan, in um, in Uzbekistan, in Kyrgyzstan, and then a big population over in Turkey. Um, they uh, traditionally, they've, they've, as I say, they're much closer in ethnicity, language, and culture to, um, to Central Asians than they are to Han Chinese, which is what we traditionally think of as Chinese. And they have, uh, you know, they, they, they were until, I think, 1949, the sort of province out there, Xinjiang, was a much more sort of lawless place and much more, uh, much more sort of uh, scattered. And you had sort of parts of the country were controlled by Russia, parts of the country were controlled by, uh, what was at the time, India. And it was a very sort of big uh, and sort of unconquered land. And in 1949, the Chinese PLA, when they sort of defined what we know today as China, they conquered this whole territory, took it over and basically decided, OK, well, this is part of China. And what you had was the Uyghur people finding themselves living under sort of Beijing's rule, but at the same time feeling they're not part of it. And what you've seen happen over the years is that this sort of resentment and anger towards Beijing is something that's only increased. As time has gone on, we've seen that substantial Han Chinese populations have migrated from the sort of populated parts of China in the sort of east coast along uh, along the seas have sort of moved inland and a lot of times moved into Xinjiang and have sort of slowly pushed the Uyghurs so that you have the capital city Urumqi, which is a city that I think at the turn of the last century was 90% Uyghur is now basically 10% Uyghur and 90% Han. And so you have this sense amongst the Uyghur that their sort of land is being taken away from them, that it's slowly being sort of colonized from outside side and that they're sort of you know losing uh, their identity because as the chinese sort of come in they have sort of has, as the sort of han chinese population has grown beijing has sort of increasingly grown the infrastructure out there they've increasingly tried to sort of there's a lot of natural resources out there as well and a lot of those sort of flow um, out of the province and the money goes back often to beijing as well so there's a sense from uyghurs that they're kind of amongst all of this getting basically squashed and oppressed and so you've had a sort of reaction to this which has expressed itself in violence in a number of different ways and some is just uh, very basic uh, ethnic inter-ethnic violence that we see happen periodically but some people do express themselves using the language of jihad and we've seen in the past certainly before 9-11 there were substantial Uyghur populations that were living in Afghanistan uh, mostly around Jalalabad, uh, where some of them were allegedly talking about plotting to do something in China and going to the Chinese government actually did organize some plots, though it's very difficult to pin down the details of what actually happened. Um, but, you know, this sort of uh, community continues to exist. And we see within sort of Xinjiang, they sort of live uh, quite, or in some cases, quite an unhappy existence. And we've seen instances of violence escalating over the years. But then outside, we've also seen that there is a community that continues to talk this language of jihad and talk talks about wanting to launch attacks in China or against China, but has in fact found itself for the most part fighting alongside the Taliban in Afghanistan and uh, alongside the TTP in Pakistan, and even showing up in places far afield as Syria, fighting against the Assad regime, or in some cases alongside ISIS. And uh, Davin. Oh, uh, uh, 
I would just add something short to yeah, that because exactly. I, I think that's a, I think that's a, an excellent um, excellent overview. Um, the one thing I'd add is that when we're talking about Uyghur groups, uh, the ones that Rafael is referring to specifically um, are known interchangeably as, as Etim, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, or TIP, the Turkestan Islamic Party. And there's actually there's actually this historical precedence within Uyghur history uh, where they're drawing some of this language from. Um, so mm-hmm. in in November of 1933 in the city of Kashi, um, something called the East Turkestan Islamic Republic was founded. It lasted for mm. less than three months. Uh, then mm. later on, in November of 1944, in the city of Yining, uh, there was another uh, East Turkestan Republic that was founded. Mm. It lasted for a little bit less than two years. So the movement that they're using now, and the group that is associated, as he said, with the Taliban and uses the language of jihadism, um, is also drawing its, its own references as well yeah. from uh, 20th century Uyghur history in the region. Yeah, no, I think it's it's very true. There was the, the this East Turkestan Republic that was way back then. But in some ways, for me, what's fascinating about that uh, that history is that you know the the East Turkestan Republic when it merged in those two places, and I think for a while it was going for almost three years. Um, it was it was very odd because it kind of played into the time of, of the time when you had these sort of great game politics between Russia right. and the sort of remnants of Imperial Britain that would sort of you know have these struggles between each other out there. And I think for I, I certainly think the second of those two republics was very much a, a sort of Russian proxy. But in some ways, that to me speaks to this unfortunate nature of the sort of Uyghur cause, which is one that has so often found itself being co-opted by others and has never really had the sort of capacity to express itself in its own in its own way. It becomes kind of a pawn in these struggles between uh, between lots of others. But, you know, uh, David's 100 percent right that, you know, there was this uh, East Turkestan uh, Republic that existed at least twice. And, you know, it's interesting if you go to Istanbul now. It's still the sort of the embers of that uh, whole idea still exist there. Um, the Turkish government has always seen itself as the, you know, the father figure to all these Central Asian Turkic populations. And they particularly help a lot of the um, they are very supportive in particular of uh, of um, of the Uyghur cause. And I think Erdogan himself has made a very big point of sort of supporting them. And you've got a kind of martyrs park just near the Blue Mosque in um, in Istanbul that is uh, that is uh, that still has the sort of the flag of the East Turkestan Islamic movement there and is very um, is, uh, you know, venerates the sort of leadership of it and the, the republic when it, it sort of briefly exists, as David mentioned. And David, I'm glad you brought up the names of the two groups that play a big role in this opposition. Um, that was one of the questions I actually wanted someone to answer, so David answered it. But you alluded to... <laughs> he read your mind. He did, he did. He's, he's psychic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but as we were talking about earlier in the talk, both of you alluded to this different approach that that China has towards dealing with non-state actors. So I was wondering if we could talk about this a little bit more and looking at how China uses Pakistan and Afghanistan, which I know hmm. you both alluded to earlier, but looking at this in more detail. And either one of you can answer that. <laughs> Go ahead, Rafael. I know this, this uh, okay. is something that you spent a lot of time on. No, no, that's very kind. I know, David, you've done a lot of research on it as well, so I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to face. But uh, I don't know. I think the Chinese, you know, in terms of them uh, focusing on uh, trying to deal with sort of non-state groups, I think the way David characterized it before is probably uh, is probably quite correct. It's 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 kind of. You know, at the moment, it's very much about using outside actors um, uh, to sort of deal with problems that they have on the ground. I don't think we've seen yet that the Chinese have developed their own sort of capacity to do these things. Um, I think that, you know, their drone technology, it does exist. 
this, but it's still pretty mentor in some ways. Um, I think the sort of earlier operation I mentioned in the Mekong Delta, where they'd gone in and sort of snatched these um, these uh, drug dealers, basically, who had murdered these sailors, these Chinese sailors, you know, that's an instance of them sort of going out and snatching people. But I think that, you know, more broadly, that approach is one that, you know, doing in a place like Laos or Cambodia, where you're dealing with, you know, drug groups who are sort of reasonably heavy armed is one thing. I think doing it against non-state armed groups, uh, sort of dedicated jihadist groups, for example, ISIS or something like that, is something the Chinese are still quite away from being able to actually engage with. And I think they'd probably want to continue to be seen in that light, because I think from their perspective, the idea that they had that capacity to do it and they could do it would suddenly mean that it would be something they'd have to use and they'd have to use maybe more frequently than they want to and you know that has all sorts of associated problems with it you look at the united states and the, you know the, the the consequent responsibility goes with it and i'm not sure that's something the chinese necessarily want i think in terms of activating the afghans and the pakistanis to respond to their problems you know certainly the pakistanis have demonstrated a capacity of you know when the chinese have a demand uh, you know, the question, the, the response from the Chinese is really, you know, it's, it's how high should we jump, basically? <laughs> you, know, right. how, you know, what is it? It's, it's not really a it's, it's, it's a question of that more than anything else. I think with the Afghans, I think the Afghans as well have got a pretty good track record of responding to these problems when the Chinese sort of expressed it to them. Um, because frankly, the people that the, the the sort of the Chinese would be worrying about would be people that the Afghan government probably considers enemies as well. So it's not particularly a problem. I think the interesting conversation about this really comes into when you're looking at Central Asia, you look at a country like Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, where you've got substantial Uyghur minority populations that live there, and whom the Chinese have in the past sometimes expressed some concerns about. And this is a different situation because you're not dealing with sort of necessarily external actors who've come in, uh, but you're dealing with sort of people who are, for, you know, nationals of a foreign country who are potentially involved in groups that are concerned to the Chinese. And that's where I think there's a very difficult and murky game at play, which I'm not sure we've understood totally yet. And I'm not sure we totally have a sight of what the Chinese are doing about it. And when I said Afghanistan, honestly, I, I realized I really meant the Taliban. Um, how hmm. does China use the Taliban? I know David was mentioning earlier when it comes to guarding these mineral resource projects that China is doing. They utilize Afghanistan, sorry, Taliban, the Taliban in Afghanistan. So what other ways do they use the Taliban to help with this Uyghur militant issue? Well, I would describe them as, as using the Taliban to help. Um, rather, they yeah. have a strategy of engagement with the Taliban. I mean, if you, the Chinese in general, I mean, if you speak to Chinese diplomats, they're, they're really concerned about any sort of Islamist group coming to power, let alone the Taliban. Um, like, the Muslim Brotherhood's rise in Egypt really freaked them out, uh, in part because, mm. uh, unlike the United States, they don't come from a society in which religion plays a really big role in the state. So even though they deal with groups like that, um, it's not really because they you trust them or see them as a positive force. Uh, that being said, they've had long-standing contacts with the Taliban. Uh, you know, the Taliban rose to power in the 1990s, and uh, at the time, China engaged with them. Uh, it entered into negotiations with the Taliban leader, with Mullah Omar, to try to make him promise that the Uyghur groups wouldn't use the territory that he controlled in order to prepare operations against China. And even after the 9-11 attacks, China continued to maintain a relationship with the Quetta Shura, with the Taliban's leadership council that was based in Pakistan. Um, and as the drawdown approaches, as, as, as the U.S. drawdown has grown closer and closer, Reportedly, the Taliban has increased its contacts. Now, its goal 
is basically to get the Taliban to do um, you know, to to act in a similar manner to what I outlined before with, with its commercial projects, just as it wants to enter into ge- negotiations to make sure that its commercial projects aren't attacked. It's what it wants to make sure that that the Taliban will make some sort of concession, uh, whether that concession is that Uyghur groups can't uh, enjoy any safe haven in its territory, which I think is an unlikely concession for them to make. To on the other hand that their territory cannot be used to plan attacks against China, which I think ultimately is a concession that China can get. But uh, the reason why they're, they're doing this, uh, I think, uh, number one, if it succeeds, then they're able to achieve their objective at a much lower cost than undertaking military operations. But also, as Rafael talked about, um, they have a concern that uh, if they end up you know, building up capacity to attack violent non-state actors, that this could really change the trajectory of their foreign policy. Uh, that, by the way, is where I think the discussion about China and Afghanistan becomes very, very interesting. That I think that there actually uh, are ways in which its policy towards Afghanistan, due to um, some of the um, some of the factors surrounding its engagement there, could have a significant impact on its global foreign policy. Uh, now, a- again, I'm not saying that this is likely to happen, uh, but one thing that you'll find looking over any historical period is that the trigger for larger change is usually something rather small. And the way that China operates, it operates a foreign policy on the basis of precedent. That's been the case um, you know, at least since it, it began to uh, um, embrace its non-interference slash non-intervention doctrine. And um, you know, e- even now, as it's become much more willing to be engaged in global affairs, it still uh, operates on the basis of precedent. And so a lot of precedents, in my view, could end up being set uh, in, uh, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, that would inf- influence its foreign policy elsewhere. Rafaela, would you like to comment on what David just said? Well, I think David makes a very interesting point. I mean, the idea of looking at Afghanistan and China's policy towards it as kind of the beginnings of a new paradigm of Chinese foreign policy is, I think, a very interesting perspective. And it's one certainly that influences a lot of the work that I'm trying to do looking at China and Central Asia. Because I think when we're looking at Chinese policy towards Central Asia, and by that I mean the five stands sort of above Afghanistan, but Afghanistan is a key part of this, you know, because this is... Uh, you know, a part of the world where they've invested a lot, where they've got lots of sort of natural links through groups like through populations like the Uyghurs and others, you know, and that they've got this organization called the SEO, which is the first sort of international multilateral security organization that Chinese decide to get involved in. The fact that they've got these economic and trade links sort of flowing through this region as well. You know, it's a whole part of the world where you're seeing the Chinese, I think, testing out some of their foreign policy approaches. And so I think what you're seeing there is a kind of model for potentially what you're going to see elsewhere in the future. And when you look at a country like Afghanistan, which has been so beset by conflict over such a long period of time, you got a place where it makes natural sense that Chinese would have to start to figure out some of these tough questions about what they do about their foreign security policy. And by that, a more sort of kinetic foreign policy than we've seen them do in other situations. So I think it's a very interesting perspective to look at it and to say that Afghanistan does offer uh, this potential. I think, however, the one uh, caveat I would add to all this is I would say we have to be careful of the timelines that we're thinking about this on. And I think that we often, I think we forget at our peril that Chinese do sometimes look at these things with a very long-term perspective. And so where we might see a foreign policy uh, that requires a sort of response here and now, they might see one that in fact doesn't necessarily mandate the sort of response that, you know, Western power might see is required. Um, they might have a five or 10 year perspective on these things. So to kind of bring this talk to a conclusion, 
let me just throw this out. Can China's foreign policy in Afghanistan succeed, especially with the U.S. drawback and the heightened security risks that are involved? Uh, my answer is yes. Uh, it, it certainly can succeed. I don't expect it to. Uh, and look, when we say succeed, um, that's always a, a loaded term because uh, you know it's very rare that you get a hundred percent success on anything that you're trying to undertake. You're looking at bounds of acceptability. So they have two prongs that they're trying to accomplish. One thing is that they're trying to uh, accomplish um, uh, commercial objectives. Um, and there's both strategic and also economic reasons that they're doing so. Some of the strategic reasons just relate to um, the Chinese desire to make sure that they secure adequate natural resources. Um, they're going to face a number of problems, but um, it may well be that to them success is just maintaining the project there, um, uh, both uh, their energy concession and also the, the Messinac project, uh, maintaining the projects, getting a foothold so that they can exploit the resources further if the security situation shifts in a favorable direction. To them, that might be success. As for the Uyghur mm. issue, uh, I don't think that they're going to get everything that they want, but they may be able to create a situation where either Afghanistan isn't used as a safe haven to attack them, or else that the damage being done from Afghanistan is sufficiently low that they feel that they've effectively contained the, 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 the problem. And I know that, that Rafael is going to speak, so uh, I'll, I'll just make this my, my wrap-up and uh, because I know that he has to go as well. And uh, simply say that, that uh, I've really enjoyed this. I'm glad we got to talk about the issue. I think mm. this is extraordinarily interesting. And I'm particularly honored to have Rafael a part of this. I interviewed him when I was working on my monograph. And he's someone whose uh, work on this, I think, is at the very leading edge. So it's really great to have him be a part of this discussion. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Divi. That was very, uh, very, very kind comments. And, you know, certainly I followed your work for a while. And I know you've been working on this one. And it was a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm, I, I'll be 100% honest, I haven't had a chance to read the monograph yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. But I'm very glad that this, you know, this conversation has teed me up to, um, to, have a, to really look forward to reading it. So, you know, I, I think as to the point of, you know, can China's uh, foreign policy in Afghanistan succeed, I think that that is something that, um, it, it could well do. And I think the Chinese do have a sort of longer term perspective on these things. I think the one aspect which is interesting to me is what's going to happen next year, because I think until now we've seen a Chinese policy that has been very hedging. Um, we can see that they've done a lot of things, but they've also not done a lot of things. And I think this is part of a studied strategy to kind of not take a decision. And I think what's going to be really interesting is next year when they do actually have to start to make a decision, because you no longer have the sort of excuse in some ways of a way Western army, a NATO force that is there, um, that is acting as the sort of the buffer, they will have to start to focus on a lot of the questions that we've been looking at. And they have to start to make a decision about whether they really want to put their chips in or not. Um, my suspicion is probably a long line with David that they, they probably will. And I think that they've got, you know, the fact that this is an adjacent country means they don't really have a choice in terms of just sort of backing away and letting it calmly collapse. But I think what they do, um, I think, will be really interesting to observe. And I think the role that they play will certainly be, I think, key in Afghanistan's future. Well, we'll have to have both of you on the show when that time happens to discuss what happens in the future. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure having well, that's a yeah, it's been a pleasure having both of you on the show. You're both fantastic on this topic, and thank you for coming on the Loopcast. Thank well, you. Thank you very much for having us, and thank you very much, David, for uh, for you know putting this all together. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs>